when Christmas rolls around, I oftentimes, um, my oldest son was born on December 11th, and so I, I, my mind goes back, you know, the, there's Christmas is about the birth of a son, these sorts of things, and so there's a certain kind of a very intimate irony that exists. My wife and I lived in Alaska 11 years ago, uh, so we were very far away from home. My son was born in an army hospital, which is kind of like a stable. Um, so uh, it just was a very intimate, intimate time. The idea, and I know that there are some here who are celebrating the birth of of a relative, uh, even on Christmas Eve. And, and that, that kind of ties all of this. It makes it very real, very live to us. We have on our Christmas tree the birth caps of all four of our children. You know, the little knit things you get in the hospital? Well, we just kept adding, so now we have, have a tree of hats. Um, uh, I was, I'll tell it. I'll tell it. I have time. So we were in Alaska... And my wife was overdue. She she's always was overdue. And we didn't have a Christmas tree, but we wanted to be like real Alaskans, what they would call sourdoughs. So we decided, we'll go cut our own tree down. So I put the Ford Explorer in a four-wheel low, and we just headed out off the road. Into, I mean, my truck was pushing snow. And I just remember... I had my little bow saw, and I had to dig to get to the bottom of the tree. And I just remember I was bending down like this, cutting, and I looked up, and I saw this large woman. <laughs> and I, I just remember thinking, like, dear Lord, what have I done? Because we were out in the middle of nowhere, and she could have given, I mean, she could have gone into labor there, and the car could have been stuck. I cannot believe they let that child come home with us. Uh, <laughs> so anyway. But this all ties together. I am going somewhere. Um, when a child is born, by, by the way, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of books you buy when you're pregnant, what to expect when you're expecting, your baby day by day, or whatever, it goes on and on and on. But there's, nonetheless, there are a thousand things that nobody writes about that you would like to know. You'd like to know. I never knew the baby had a belly button stem that falls off. I would have liked to have known that. I would have liked to have prepared for that. I'm still a little upset, right? The, but there's just a whole list of things that, that people don't tell you that you just kind of work out on the fly as what it means to be a parent or whatever. And one of the things that people just seem to know but that there really isn't a rule book for is who, who do you contact when the baby's born and how does that work? You know, so the child's born and you're excited there's generally speaking kind of a, a, a rule that orders how you let people know. So the, the, the first group of people you would let know when, when, when a baby's born is what I would call the inner circle, which is this circle of uh, immediate family and friends, extremely tight friends. I would say the inner circle is exclusive. It would be like parents, siblings, um, very, very close people, people who you want to actually tell them with your mouth about the birth of the child. Like, that, it's not enough to send them an email. There needs to be, like, a connection of souls in some way. Like, a physical embrace would be ideal, but at the very least, you want to, on the phone, to be able to say, Dad, you have a grandson. 
or mom, you're a grandma, or whatever it is, and to hear the, the corresponding like reflection back of, you know, yippee, or whatever, that's coming across, there's that inner circle, there need, that needs to be shared. That's what that's, that's called the inner circle. Obviously, there's no rule book, so these terms are not real. Um, the second group that I would think of is just outside the inner circle, but they're close friends and close family. The kind of people that actually know that the mother's in labor and they're praying, or they're the ones calling, going, you know, are you still there yet? Or every time the, you call them as, as the lady, they go, what is it, is it, is it? And you're like, no, I just wanted to borrow something. And they get frustrated because... They're kind of traveling along with you on this journey towards, you know, babydom. And they're, they're excited about what's happening. And they're the ones who are ma- making sure there's meals arranged and their, their spirits rejoice. And, and they may not get a phone call, but they certainly, when they get the email or the Facebook or whatever it is, you, they're kind of the next to know. That's that crowd. And then outside of that is this whole slew of people that, you know, they get the, the, the stats on the baby. Little Tommy, six pounds, eight ounces, 22 inches. We're thankful, 10 fingers, 10 toes. Merry Christmas. And they're the ones who kind of email you back, hooray, or great. And they're happy, and they're sincere, but they're far enough out that, that they, you know, they, they may not have even known you were in the hospital. That's, that's my three-ring circle thought. But the question is, who visits Okay, so it, it's easy to kind of say there's these inner circle, middle, hour circle, but on the issue of who actually visits the hospital after the birth, this I have more trouble defining. This is like a more intimate idea. It's almost as if when you visit or when you're visited, that these these infant moments, they're fleeting moments, right? They're moments that are going away. And you can remember as, as, well, maybe you can't, but those of you who will be parents, those of you who are working, you kind of remember you're straining to hold on to all these little memories, all these firsts that are happening are such big moments. And you have this, these about 36 hours after the birth of the child where you're in the hospital. And, and so that's an especially intimate time that you're sharing with the few people who come. I mean, they're in a way, they're kind of entering into a photograph of memories that are, that's fleeting. It's here and it's gone. It's 36 hours. And so people, people take a lot more care as to, am I supposed to visit? Do I visit? Am I, you know, and you'll, you'll see, you know, throughout your life, you'll be in a room and you'll see that uncle who's sitting in the corner who kind of feels like I should not be in this picture, you know, like, this is not me. And, and it's, it's that unspoken rule of somehow he feels like he may have kind of transgressed into a setting that's, that's more intimate than, than his relationship. Because one thing that's being said about people who visit the child in the hospital, one expression is, I'm here, I'm in the life of this child, I matter to this child, and this child matters to me, not just now, but forever. I mean, there is... Oftentimes there's that connection of, I'm part of this story. I have a stake in the life of this child. I have a role. That's, I think, kind of what's being said. Well, I say all that to say that today we're going to look at two groups of people that visit Jesus. Two kind of birthday visitors 
that are invited into the birth scene or invited into the early fleeting moments of the life of Christ. These people that God's given them a stake and a share in, in the life of Christ from the very first moment. We're going to look at the shepherds and kind of their response towards the Lord and why the Lord would choose them. And they get, I mean, they get, they get a prime spot. I mean, the birth night of Jesus, the shepherds. Mrs. Mary, like Mary's mom, was not there. Joseph's parents were not there. Mary's sisters, not there. Joseph's family, not there. In fact, it looks like the Lord intentionally isolated Mary and Joseph from all of the traditional inner, inner circle visitors that you or I would have expected, and that certainly would, have, would be expected back then. It's like the Lord isolated them from all of those people and then selected Shepherds, and in its own roundabout sort of way, wise men. I mean, did you ever think, by the way, that so Joseph has to return to Bethlehem, his hometown, to report for a census through the decree of Caesar. He gets there, but he has to stay in a stable because there's no room. I mean, if you went back to your hometown, there may be that uncle or aunt, the weird people, that, you are, that are weird, but you would pick them over a stable. You know, I mean, it really seems, it seems unique, uniquely distinct how isolated Mary and Joseph are, even in the town of his own ancestry. So we're going to look at the shepherds. We're also going to look at the wise men. And, and the wise men, they don't show up on the birth night. They show up in the birth season. But it seems from Scripture that Scripture wants us to kind of appreciate two things. When Jesus was born, two groups visited, shepherds and wise men. And so we're going to look. We're going to look at the text. We're going to kind of investigate it and kind of ask ourselves, why? Why is this? Why did he select them this way? So if you would, turn to Luke chapter 2. And we'll begin with shepherds. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 20. This is what the scripture says. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Christ, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they returned, hurried off, and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed. 
at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. We won't spend much time on this this morning, but I do find it significant that the shepherds are the first evangelists of the New Testament. That it's the shepherds who, on the birth of Christ, go to the stable, they see the birth of Christ, and what do they do? They spontaneously begin to tell the people in the town what's happened, all that's happened, and all that's going on, and, and, and they rejoice in the Lord. And I, 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 I find that interesting, that they're the first ones to really begin to speak and spread the first hints of the gospel of Jesus. Well, if we look in this text, it kind of the stage is set um, by an angel appearing in the fields to a shepherd. It says, "An angel appeared, and the glory of the Lord shone around, and the the shepherds were afraid." But it says the angel kind of puts them at ease and says, "Do not be afraid." And what the angel does is the angel has uh, one one main purpose. He, the angel announces. Who's been born? He doesn't name the child. He just says who the child is. The child is the Christ. So the angel kind of says, there is a child who's born. The child is the Messiah, the expected anointed one of Israel. And then the angel directs the shepherds where to go. This is how you'll know you found them. You'll find them lying in a manger down in Bethlehem. So, so there's kind of who is being born and where do you find them. That's kind of what the, the angel's trying to do here. And then something happens, which it's amazing the things you don't pay attention to. Um, after the angel does this, there is this moment. It says in verse 13, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying. So, so the angel speaks to the shepherds the Messiah has been born. The Messiah is down in Bethlehem. This is how you'll know him. You can find him. And then when, he's, when the angel's done with that, the company, the heavenly hosts of God kind of come and join with the angel. It's almost as though the, the, the heavens ripped open and, and heaven can be seen. And there's this great choir and they're singing. They're praising God. They're saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. And this is all being done in the sight of the shepherds. I I can't find any evidence that anybody else saw this. You would think if the heavens were ripped open or the skies were ripped open and this was done, that the whole town would have seen it, you might expect. But it seems like it's done just for the shepherds. It doesn't seem accidental. It doesn't seem like the angel before he departed, you know, didn't close the door to heaven and the shepherds saw, oh, this is, by the way, what heavenly hosts do, it seems as though God is presenting to the shepherds the heavenly response to what's happening. I mean, I find it interesting that, so the angel says to the shepherds, the Messiah, the Savior of mankind, or certainly of the Jewish people in their minds, is down in Bethlehem. I mean, there is there's natural excitement to that, but I think what God does, I think what he's doing here for the shepherds is he's adding to that a greater degree of excitement and significance. So it's not just that the Messiah, the Christ, is down in Bethlehem. Now you add to it the fact that all of heaven, 
all of heaven is thrilled about what's happening. And they're praising God for what's happening. They're not just excited. They're, they're, they're before the Lord saying glory to God in the highest regarding, regarding the event. I feel like the Lord is doing this very big thing for these otherwise very small people. So why the shepherds? Why do the shepherds get this, this, this show or this demonstration? Why do they get this invitation? I mean, this is the inner circle invitation to be the first people to celebrate with Mary and Joseph about the birth of Christ. Why do they receive this kind of this, this invitation? I mean, it would make sense to me if they said the priests received an invitation. I mean, Bethlehem's five miles away from Jerusalem. It's not too much to say that God would have told the priests or the prophet, you know, some of the surrounding maybe people speaking prophecy or or people like Simeon who were sitting inside the temple waiting for the culmination of the salvation of the Lord to appear. Why not give him the invitation? Zechariah, why not give him the invitation? He's, He's a priest. I mean, I understand why not Herod. Herod's a kind of a rotten fellow, but there's, there are good priests. There are even good Pharisees. Nicodemus, why doesn't Nicodemus get an invitation? Why in the world is it shepherds? Shepherds. We have this affection, I think, I think we have this affectionate bias towards shepherds uh, today. And there's two reasons why I think we have this bias. One is because none of us have ever been shepherds. So it's romantic to us. You know, we, it doesn't smell in our minds. You know, it's kind of uh, sound of music, rolling hills and the hither and Edelweiss and, you know, nice puffy bleeding sheep and you have your nice perfectly arched staff. I mean, it's just, in our minds, it's been romanticized because it's, 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 left kind of the living reality of our lives. It's, it's kind of like our children. They want to know how does a chicken end up in the plastic in the grocery store. They don't understand kind of the long path and journey that that creature had to go. And that there was a lot of dirty work, a lot of its own kind of shepherding that had to occur to get that plastic-wrapped chicken in the grocery store. But we, we kind of live in a romanced world where it shows up clean for us. That's the first reason. I think we're like affectionately disposed towards what's otherwise uh, can be a mundane and filthy occupation. I'm not saying it's negative. I'm not saying it's the worst thing in the world. I'm saying it's dirty. It's dirty. You, you are delivering sheep in the field. So Actually, there was a shepherd in the last service that came and talked to me. And they said, it's not as bad as you think. But it is dirty. And he said, you know when sheep give birth? February. And that's cold. I mean, so it's filthy, and you're delivering sheep, and, and not all the sheep are healthy, and so you're nursing sick sheep, and you're mending broken sheep, and, you know, if one breaks down, you've got to repair it. I mean, it's just, you've got all of the sheep maintenance, just regular sheep maintenance that's going on, and it's kind of filthy, dirty work, but it's romantic to us, and I understand that. It's, Especially we who kind of live in our cubicles. That's the first reason. The second reason I think 
shepherding is romantic is because the Bible romanticizes it for us, doesn't it? The Bible says the Lord is my shepherd. The, the Bible talks about Christ as being the great shepherd of the sheep. And even in the words that are going to be spoken before the Magi in a second, the phrase will come when he'll shepherd us kind of combines to kind of build for us a positive disposition towards a shepherd. But the reality is, the reality is, is in that day, there was no great nobility behind being a shepherd. If you had a son or a daughter, they did not have a poster of a shepherd on their wall in their bedroom. It wasn't what they wanted to grow up to be. It's shepherd. It was, it was common man's labor. It was dirty labor. It was hard work. It was lonely work. I mean, they're at night in the hills outside of the city. I mean, that can be lonely. It can be tranquil, but it's work. If you add to this, not only is it filthy hard work, but you add to it this idea that it is a ceremonially, ceremonially unclean work. So there is certainly filthy, stinky kind of occupation, but it's almost certainly also ceremonially unclean, meaning that the very people that are raising the sheep to be sacrificed in the temple five miles away are the very people who could rarely actually enter the temple to make sacrifice. That it was their hard work and their labor, but they're touching sick animals and they're touching dead animals. So they're, according to the law of Moses, they are are unclean and therefore cannot enter towards the presence of God because of many of these situations. And so their labor, they're constantly mindful of the fact that they they cannot do the very things for which the sheep are being raised. It's kind of coming away from their filthy, ceremonially unclean hands to the sacramentally cleaned hands of the priest. And there's this, this separation between the two. I think, um, I think the shepherds were unclean. I think they were unwashed. I think they knew it. And I think this is why God has invited them in. Now, I think there's more reasons why God has invited the shepherds. Uh, so I don't want to flatten the significance of this. I'll say this. I do think, in my heart of hearts, I do think that when Jesus Christ was born on earth, the Lord determined that his sacrificial sheep would have shepherds. I think he wanted that to happen. I think it's beautiful. I don't want to take away from that. I think there's a significant meaning there. I also think that the Lord wanted from the very beginning there to be a connection between the idea of shepherding and his son, who is our great shepherd. I think that's there too. But I also think, on top of all of this, is this idea that that the kingdom of God is deep and that God wanted to demonstrate from the very beginning of time, very beginning of, of the advent of Christ, that, that the, those who are unclean and filthy, the common man is part of the kingdom of God. That's what I think this invitation is really about, is how deep the kingdom of God is. That the kingdom of God or the Messiah who's come is not a gift to the elite, and it's not a gift to the righteous, and it's not a gift to those who, who have the luxury or can afford or have the convenience to be ceremonially clean. It's not for the people who dress the right way or say the right things or know enough that Jesus Christ has come for all people, starting at the bottom. Jesus is a common man's Savior. 
And I think this invitation of the shepherds demonstrates that, that the depth of the kingdom of God, the fact that Jesus Christ came to the bottom to receive those who would come to him, people who know they're unclean. There is a built-in humility to certain occupations, and I think shepherding is one of those. A humility of a knowledge of, this is not a great mental exercise. This doesn't require a great gift, and I'm always filthy. And I think God gives that special invitation. There is a source of criticism of the church. Uh, Biblical criticism. Certain scholars will say this. They'll say this about the church. They usually write it, but it sounds like this when I read it. You're trying to tell me, that's how it sounds, that the God of the universe... it's the pages, it's words, but they're looking at me like this. That the God of the universe, the sovereign Lord of the entire cosmos, this is what you want me to understand, they'll say, decided that he was going to bring his message of salvation to mankind through the mouths of toothless, nomadic shepherds who sit around the fire telling stories to each other. You know, when they look at Genesis and Exodus and Kings, they say, really, you want me to believe, you want me to believe that the whole God of the universe decided to bring his entire message through a humble, no-name, nondescript people, through, through nomadic, toothless, oral tales? Is that what you want me to understand? That's when I read, I hear that. And the answer of the church should be, we absolutely intend to believe that. That is exactly the God we worship. We worship a God who comes to us through the filthy. His sovereign power is worked out through perfection, through the filthy and through the unworthy and through the ceremonially unclean so that God's will can be done. He is a God of the shepherds. Okay, that is the first visitors. Turn with me, if you would, now to the second, the second party. You want to call them the wise men. I like to call them the magi. That's actually the word, magi. I think we like to call them wise men because it feels more comfortable than Eastern astrologers. Eastern New Age astrologers. Which is really essentially what they were. I mean, we've got to be honest with you. Wise men is kind of a euphemism for pagan Eastern magicians who came to see Jesus. That's what they were. They were also wise. And we don't, we don't know exactly when they arrived. I, it was some, somewhere between the ninth day and two years, somewhere like there. We know that Jesus was in Jerusalem on the eighth day. And we know that immediately after the wise men leave, the Lord speaks to Joseph in a dream and says, pack up and go to Egypt. And so we don't know where inside of that it is. Um, But nonetheless, they are invited to the birth of Jesus Christ. And this is what's said. Okay, I'll read uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to uh, to 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, 
and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for it, this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is one of the great scenes of all the Bible. If I, if I had an opportunity to go back in time and just be a fly on the wall um, like, and watch something happen, this would be on the list. It would be on the list. Let me just show you. If you have an imaginative mind, maybe you can kind of appreciate this. These, these three, well, there's maybe more than three, right? We have three wise men because we have three gifts and we don't like to say pagan astrologers. That's why we got the three wise men. These magi from the east, they were probably people of great notoriety because they gained the the audience of the king so readily. But they arrive into the court of the king. And now listen to this. They arrive into the court of the king. They stare at Herod right in the eyes and they say to the king of the Jews, where is the king of the Jews who is just born? I would love to see that. I would love to see that room. Just deal with that landing. I mean... Everybody, I would just love to see how everybody reacts to that. To, to hear the wise men say to King Herod, King Herod, this is what he's, King Herod, you false Idumean puppet king that the Romans have placed here, who really has no biblical reference at all, where is the real king of the Hebrew people that has just been born? I mean, I think that's what, how it must have landed on Herod. At the time, I would just love to see kind of all the sellout priests and his court and everything dealing with how... Do, I can't believe somebody just said this. That makes me think that these, these three magi were wise and that they were confident to say that in the court of the king. But they say it, and, and the prophets, and the, well, the scribes and the priests, they look down and they say, well, we know it's in Bethlehem. They know, they know all the details. They just didn't know that the child was born. It's interesting to think that by this time, Jesus has already been to Jerusalem. He's already been circumcised. I would like to fancy that one of these priests circumcised Jesus and didn't even know it. That, that would be so good. Like, ah, oh, that would be like the biggest bust ever. You know, the, the idea that Jesus has been right under their nose. Maybe one of them had even held the Messiah in his arms in the temple. Didn't even know it. 
shows you how lost they are to be that close to God and to miss it. Versus the Magi. Look at the Magi. Look at what they know. So these are people from, you know, maybe from eastern Persia. The Magi is an idea. It was a tribe of priests from Persia. That's where the actual name comes from, but it's had a generic meaning also. These people from the east who've come, this is what they know. They know they know enough to have come to Jerusalem. That's one. They also know that a child has been born. They also know that this baby is somehow a king of the Hebrew people. And they've come to worship this child. In fact, they've brought gifts with them. Think of that. Think of all of that. They've, they've come from, just from the, the revelation of God in their own lives, they've traveled great distance from the east to come and arrive and to give, pay homage and give worship to this child as king. Now, that expresses a big idea. That's not simply they're excited about the birth of the king. That expresses the idea that the reign of Jesus has kingly implications to people far outside of the kingdom of Israel. I mean, for them to travel, I mean, God is bringing people far outside of Judea to come and worship before Jesus. The implication, right? They bow down. They worship them. They worship him as king and they give him gifts. That kind of submissiveness to Jesus There's massive implication there. The kingdom of God is not just deep. It's not just for the unwashed and the filthy and those who know it. It's not, it's not just deep in that sense of that it reaches down even to the lowliest of the low. The kingdom of God is also wide, that it reaches so far out to the east. There are a few years back, we, we, we taught up through Genesis chapters 4 through 11, right after the fall through the flood of Noah, and the Tower of Babel. And the sermon series, if you can remember, was called East of Eden. And there was an image that was kind of echoed throughout that entire sermon series of the progression and migration of man eastward as they continued to fall farther and farther away from the Lord. So when Adam and Eve sin, they have to leave the garden. And where do they leave? They settle east of the garden. Cain kills Abel. Where does he go? He goes and he builds a city east in the lands of the east. And that that trend happens about three or four times in chapters 4 to 11. Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babel was settled in a building in the lands east of where Noah had settled. There's this progression east all the time, all the time going farther away from God and farther away from God. And at the birth of Jesus Christ, God looks as far east as he can and says, I'm going to bring people to worship the birth of my son from as far east as possible. The kingdom of God is wide. It's so wide. It reaches beyond the Judea, beyond Samaria. It reaches all the way to the ends of the earth. I want to uh, end with one thought about the Magi. That's kind of weighed on me. Did you notice that they don't need to be taught how to worship the Lord. So there are these pagan astrologers who come to worship the king. They don't show up to to, to Herod and say, now how exactly do we worship? 
they seem to instinctively know how to worship. Right? The Bible gives them credit for worship. They worship the Lord, the Bible says. Check. They know how to worship. They don't know who to worship. That's the problem. It's not they don't know how to worship. It's they don't know who to worship. And this is where I see the church, even a well-meaning church, if it's not very careful, this, the church can get this wrong. We can get in the habit, because it's easier, of telling people how to be Christian rather than who to worship. That we can be trying, thinking we're sharing the gospel. What we're really doing is telling people this is how to worship. This is how to be a Christian. This is how you should be and how you should do this and how this happens. This is what things look like and and what things ought to be rather than saying, you know how to worship. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. We know how to worship. Mankind was born worshiping. When we come out of the womb, our default position is worship ourselves. We know how to worship. We don't need to learn how to worship. We need to have our sense of worship directed to a person. We need to have our our, our entire sense of worship directed towards Jesus Christ. And when you do that, it's through knowing Jesus Christ that informs how we worship. It's when people come into the presence of God When they come into the presence of God, that's when they fall on their knees and say, woe is me, I am undone. The first step in worship is not, well, first you say, woe is me, I am undone. And then God shows up. It's find God, and then you'll find out how to do things. Is that how we're doing it? Is that how we share the gospel? Are we sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we telling the story? Are we introducing a worshiping world to Jesus Or are we introducing a worshiping world to a cultic set of rituals that we use in our worship? The world worships. It's our job to introduce them to Jesus Christ. Amen. What I'd like to do now is invite Terry and Libby back up. I think it's appropriate uh, this morning just to have a time. I want to invite you to respond to the Lord. Maybe something spoke to you this morning in the message, or maybe there's just a, a time after Christmas to time to take some silence before the Lord and respond to Him. Re- say, the presents are unwrapped, the tree's dying, the kids have quieted down, the food's been eaten. Maybe it's another time just to recase ourselves and say, Lord, this is, this, this is why we celebrate this day. This is who you are and to recognize who he is. But maybe some of you, maybe some of you have come a great distance to be with Christ. I don't mean geographically. I mean, maybe some of you started your life so far away from the kingdom of God that if you had to tell the story, you couldn't even figure how you got here. And you just need to worship the Lord for having such a wide kingdom and for having such a wide draw. Maybe some of you who are here who grew up in the shadow of this church your whole life or going to church, but you have a keen understanding of the fact that you are not clean, that there's something about you that's filthy. And maybe this is a time for you just to, to, to be with the Lord and to recognize how deep his kingdom reaches. Whatever it is, I encourage you this time to respond to God, to take time and to be with him.